right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 101 for Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Uh, Jason Lindgren is with me, and Jason had been wanting to cover the history of the so-called truther movement for some time, um, and I agreed to do that last week. So the first hour, uh, many people who aren't deep into these kinds of things may not be familiar with some of the names, but by the second hour, we get into all the big names, Lazar, Lear, Art Bell, um, Hoagland, who of course I have a history with because he went into an article that I was interviewed for and called me a CIA and NASA shill, which is a bit ironic considering of the two of us, he is the one who worked for NASA during the Apollo missions. But there's a commonality and a thread through this entire episode, uh, and it works in kind of the same way that Jason and I often do. We show where ideas were first started and then how the, the people who come after build and build and build on the very same ideas. But another common thread is Hollywood, fame, broadcasting, movies, professional sports. We find these things in the lineage of so many people who get involved in the mainstream conspiratorial information. And from even personal experience, a number of times back in the day when the lunar wave was one of the hottest things going, production companies like Prometheus, who do Ancient Aliens, kept contacting me trying to get a hold of my scope footage. But what's ironic is they never wanted the best. They never wanted the 2012 lunar wave or other things that I consider to be the best, or like the shooting orb. They always wanted like some object transiting the moon or the light flashing clips that I did on the moon, and that's very telling on the face of it. Because they want to use these things for television shows that go out to millions of minds, and yet they're not asking me for the most interesting, best of the best, which from the guy who shot it, I am telling you, they're asking for like the second or third hand best clips, which on the face of us should tell us all something about the mainstream outlets of information that reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of minds. Anyhow, this is a very interesting episode, and in the second hour, we really do say some things that probably wouldn't fly in the first hour, particularly when we're talking about some of the most well-known names. For me, there will never come a day. I would rather be poor and honest with myself than sold out and rich. To me, the thing that is paramount is that you wake up in the morning with no regrets about the way you have conducted yourself. And for my part, I often it mystifies me that people are so readily willing to throw away these types of things for cash or fame or notoriety. Anyhow, this is episode 101. Let's jump into the history of the so-called truther movement with Jason Lindgren. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to episode 101 for Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Um, Jason Lindgren is with me, and we are going to go... I'm not even sure what to call this. We're calling it, I guess, the history of the truther movement. But Jason rightly uh, labeled his notes that he sent over to me, truth or scare. So I'll cut to the chase right at the beginning here. I think there's a hell of a lot more scare than any truth we'll find in most of what we're about to go through. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. How goes it, man? How are you doing? Ah, not too bad. It's a pleasant day here in Baton Rouge. Yeah, it's warming up here finally, so I don't know. Maybe we can legitimately call it spring. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to go back to the old accounts and try to learn if people in reasonably southern climes ever had snow after what we call spring has sprung. But anyhow, uh, I have one thing certainly to get here in the uh, intro. Uh, I did an interview with a YouTube channel called David Carter. I think it was previously called Just Finish It Records. Uh, but if you do a search for David Carter with a C, uh, and you could add Just Finish It, uh, you'll get them. Uh, it was the last interview that I did this week. I think Sage of Quay has not yet put up the interview we did. Do you have anything? The only thing I can uh, update on right now is we did some of the music for the film, and I'm going to try and put together a trailer, just a short one, to just put a teaser out there for everyone as we're working on it. Yeah, it's, you know, the the more you get into this, I, I always have mixed feelings about stuff like this. You know me, um, which is why you're doing it. But um, I'm going through all my old clips, and it's kind of a good thing maybe to get a lot of this content into another medium and in other places uh, just for preservation. But uh, as I was going through so much of my old work, man, you forget 
uh, when I look back now, it almost feels like I spent an eternity sitting behind a scope. I, I go through so many clips and I'm like, damn, I forgot I filmed that. But anyhow, anything else before we jump in here? I think I'm ready for the 101. All right. This is, in fact, uh, Truth Movement 101. And I've always hated that word, truther movement. And what we're about to cover here, from my part, is mostly message control and nonsense. Um, and I'll try not to be so blunt as we get into it, but sometimes you got to call a spade a spade. Um, as we get in here, I think I recognize, having spoke with you before we started, that there was madness to the method here in the order where if people pay attention, they'll be they'll start to see where certain ideas are introduced to the public and how the following people that come along build on these ideas. And for the record, you know, so many people get lost in mystery, um, but I'll give an example here. Whenever you see the word Illuminati, you have been told exactly nothing. It's a piece of flavorless bubblegum for you to chew on. That's all it is. It tells you nothing. It means nothing. There is no specific things in this world attached generally to that word. And it's a bit like talking about Rothschilds at this point. These are the public names that are intentionally put out there to get kicked around. Uh, it doesn't give you a view behind the curtain uh, at all, in my view. But anyhow, Jason, I'll kick it over to you. And the reason I wanted to do this is because I wanted to do a 101 on maybe what we could call the alternative media. Yeah, and you know, you, you say it right there. For so many people who are actually looking for some semblance of reality, most of what we're going to cover here is not the place to go. Um, anyone with affiliations or that are reaching many hundreds of thousands of minds through radio or these other places, they're pre-approved, man. They're playing by the playbook. If they truly did anything that upset the apple basket, guess what? They'd be gone their microphone would be removed, their publishing rights would be rescinded, these kinds of things. So uh, let's, let's do it, Jason. The concept of getting and spreading news is as old as human civilization itself, however old that really is. In the earliest days, any sort of important facts would have had to have been spread by word of mouth, and we all know how reliable that is at the absolute best of times. Once civilization got to the point where there was some form of government, Edicts would have been posted by the reigning authorities, which would then get disseminated and discussed by the locals. And even in that, you know, kind of basic confines of what you're describing there, it means basically a government, meant always means mind, so what's being governed there, um, have put their spin on whatever gets posted on the wall. And that is the main problem with almost everything we're going to go through. If you can draw a line to Hollywood, if you can draw a line to news, if you can draw a line to major media sources or radio that is going out across countries, you already see the conflict of interest because we know what these mediums have been used for and still are being used for this day. As time moved along, officially released documents from the society's governments would become the norm. While most people readily believe what it is that their governments tell them, there would always be those that would realize that the governing bodies may not always have the people's best interests in their hearts. That would lead to what could be called alternative media. A working definition of alternative media could be media that differs, sometimes quite substantially, from established dominant media, which is almost always corporate or government-sponsored, which is usually slick in production and features a lot of the same ground being covered despite the seemingly different sources. Alternative media can take many forms, including print, audio, video, the internet, and even street art. Right. So at this point, to make a distinction, uh, the only true alternative media, if you're actually looking for information that might be valid, in my view, is the grassroots. Um, we have pointed out that very few corporations, as few as one or two at this point, own almost all media in this world, with very few exceptions, which basically means if anyone had a microphone in front of their mouth and they were reaching hundreds of thousands of minds, uh, it would be bought or closed down or infringed upon in some way. And what we see now is that here on places like YouTube, where people are actually still trying to disseminate valid information, what do we see? Censorship. And that censorship tells you more than you will ever need to learn from some, some supposed media source. There is a reason for censorship. And any logical mind can break down looking at what's being censored, what is going on here. Go ahead, man. 
So the first person I would like to bring up, he's not necessarily someone I want to point out as being a fraudster in any way, shape, or form. Let's get that out of the way. But a lot of people, a huge amount of people, will draw heavily off of this man's work. And his name is Manly Palmer Hall, or Manly P. Hall, he gets called a lot. He lived from March 18th, 1901 until August 29th of 1990. He was a Canadian-born author, lecturer, astrologer, and mystic. He is best known for his 1928 work, The Secret Teachings of All Ages. Over his 70-year career, he gave thousands of lectures, including two at Carnegie Hall, and published over 150 volumes. In 1934, he founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which he dedicated to truth seekers of all time, with a research library, lecture hall, and publishing house. Many of his lectures can be found online, and his books are still in print. I've actually listened to quite a few of his things. Yeah, I know this is a popular name, and a lot of people have sent me stuff that he's done. And to be honest, I don't think I have ever um, sat through anything from YouTube or otherwise. I may have long ago looked a little bit of it, so I can't really add much here, Jason. I know he's a popular figure, um, and I know his work really spreads a wide breadth, but I'm just not that familiar with it. Lots of symbolism. Astrotheology is the big one, I would say, with him. Uh, a lot of the uh, Freemasonic stuff, because I believe he was a 33rd degree Freemason. But if I remember correctly, he also was given that as an honorary thing. I don't know if he actually was in it the whole time. So interesting figure, to say the least, and a lot of people draw heavily upon his work. Well, if he was telling people about astrotheology, at least he was, for part of what he was doing, uh, was pointing people in the right direction. How much time have we spent pointing out that every organization that ever mattered in this world was tracking the sky clock, and that's astrotheology in a nutshell. Right, and he did say that in a lot of his lectures. Not that I've heard all of them. I've listened to a few. The only problem with him is it's a little dry and hard to listen to for long periods of time, but from what I heard, the information is really sound. So, moving on, we have an interesting person I actually had never heard of until I started looking into a timeline of this sort of thing, and this is a person named William James Guy Carr. He lived from June 1895 until October 2nd, 1959. He was an English-born Canadian naval officer and an author. He originally came to be known for books about his military experiences as a submariner. He later turned to writing about a vast conspiracy which he alleged to have uncovered. He was described as the most influential source in creating the American Illuminati demonology, according to the American folklorist Bill Ellis. In the 1950s, he was the leader of the anti-communist National Federation of Christian Laymen of Toronto, Ontario. He was also one of the presidents of the Naval Club of Toronto. You know, I think this guy has claimed to have went into the Navy at age 14, for whatever that's worth, but clearly becoming a high-ranking uh, officer. Look, man, we've got the same problems that we've got with almost everything we're going to go through here. When we start talking about Illuminati, Illuminati demonology, what have you been told? You've been told nothing, basically, but this all gets tied up in Christian fundamentalism, and it becomes kind of a, a scare tactic of us and them, like speaking to Christian fundamentalists, bringing up the Luciferian and demon ideas. But to top it off, Dan Brown, who I think most people are familiar with, regurgitates almost verbatim the things that Carr is attributed to have brought up in uh, in his work. And I think everybody listening understands what Dan Brown was. He was number one New York Times bestseller, and he regurgitated all the, uh, you know, the Mona Lisa, Jesus whatever that whole thing was about, you know, the nonsense that became all those Hollywood movies. Um, and those, those, Dan, those Dan Brown novels were almost like an attempt to pass off secret, real secret information in the guise of fiction, and it's just all nonsense, man. Well, as you're going to see as I go through these next couple points here about Carr, a lot of what people have pushed in the years since then came right from this guy and I never even knew any of this. It's interesting because if he's the sole source, and I'm not and I'm not entirely certain about that, but if indeed he's the sole source, there you go. It's kind of like the reptilians thing and all that. We traced it back and we found that it really just came from one science fiction author. 
Right. Well, you see, this is the problem. You're about to show building on building on building. So some guy comes up with something and then the next guy like Dan Brown here picks it up to make a gazillion dollars in his novels, basically regurgitating all the ideas about the dollar bill and so much of Carr's work. Um, and they even take pains in some of the descriptions to try to claim Dan Brown used different sources to further try to legitimize these ideas. But let's do it. I mean, we'll show we'll show where these things start and then people can kind of track for themselves how it gets built on and built on and built on. So for if you really consider it, it's not really like independent research at all. It's like regurgitating someone else's supposed legitimate ideas and then adding a few more breadcrumbs. One of Carr's most lasting contributions to modern-day conspiracy theory was his discussion of an alleged plan for three world wars, often referred to as the 3WW, which he believed was developed by Confederate general and Masonic scholar Albert Pike. In Pawns in the Game, Carr claims that World War I was fought in order to enable the Illuminati to overthrow the powers of the Tsars in Russia and to turn that country into the stronghold of atheistic communism. The differences stirred up by the agents of the Illuminati between the British and German empires were used to foment the war. After the war ended, communism was bolstered and used to destroy other governments and weaken religions. After this, World War II was fomented by using the differences between fascists and political Zionists. This war was fought so that Nazism would be destroyed and the power of political Zionism increased so that the sovereign state of Israel could be established in Palestine. During World War II, international communism was built up until its strength equaled that of United Christendom. At that point, it was contained and kept in check until required for the final social cataclysm. Moving into the future, Carr claimed that a report came into his possession through the Canadian Intelligence Service of an alleged speech in 1952 by Rabbi Emanuel Rabinovich in which it was made known that the secret powers wished to precipitate World War III within five years. Small nations would ally with either Russia or the United States, with Israel remaining neutral. The book quotes Rabinovich saying that there will be no more white race and no more religions. Towards the end of the book, Carr states that people who wish to remain free can follow only one plan of action. They must support Christianity against all forms of atheism and secularism. Confusion has arisen as to the precise source of Carr's three World Wars scenario. As is the case with many of these claims of his, Carr does not provide a source for the scenarios, but mentions a letter written by Pike and addressed to Italian revolutionary leader Giuseppe Mazzini, which outlines a plan for unleashing nihilists and atheists after World War III has ended. The confusion increased when Michael Hopped launched his website 3worldwars.com, which mistakenly assumed that Carr also attributed the World War III scenario to the Pike letter. In fact, the authenticity of this letter is disputed. Carr states that he learned about the letter from the anti-Mason Cardinal Jose Maria Caro Rodriguez of Santiago, Chile, author of The Mystery of Freemasonry Unveiled. However, Carr's later book, Satan, Prince of This World, written in 1959, includes the following footnote. The keeper of manuscripts recently informed the author that this letter is not cataloged in the British Museum Library. It seems strange that a man of Cardinal Rodriguez's knowledge should have said that it was in 1925. More recently, the British Museum confirmed in writing to researcher Michael Haupt that such a document has never been in their possession. Pierre-André Tagif states that Carr gave an ultimate and synthetic account of this legend that links together the Illuminati, Mazzini, and Pike in a satanic plot for world domination. You know, I don't know how people stay focused on things like this when, on the face of it, you can show um, that World War III did not happen within, I think he said, five years World War III would kick off. And further, uh, you know, the idea that there's going to be no more white race and all these other things he states. And then he's pushing a religious point of view um, and trying to get people to fight against atheism and secularism. On the face of it, this is just all huff, fluff, and puff, and he's using famous names and the Catholic Church and all these other things to deflect people's attention. But what more do you need to know that this guy's claiming there's going to be a World War III within five years? Well, it didn't happen. So what's any of this worth? Right. And the last point on Carr. His books often discuss a Luciferian conspiracy by what he calls the World Revolutionary Movement, but he later attributed the conspiracy more specifically to the Synagogue of Satan. 
The term synagogue of Satan was not a reference to Judaism. Carr wrote, I wish to make it clearly and emphatically known that I do not believe the synagogue of Satan is Jewish, but, as Christ told us for a definite purpose, it is comprised of, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. From Revelations 2.9 and 3.9, this quote is taken from Satan, prince of this world, the book Carr had been working on at the time of his death. It was edited by his elder son, W.J. Carr Jr., and presented as the last manuscript exposing the Luciferian conspiracy, Satanism, secret societies, and the synagogue of Satan as driving forces behind the world revolutionary movement by Carr. Carr's son also mentions he did not publish some parts of the manuscript because many references were missing. One of the most interesting things to note about Carr's Luciferian conspiracies is that he believes they were already at work during Christ's time. As Tagif points out, there is a trans-historical scheme in Carr's idea of world conspiracy. In this kind of philosophy of history, anticipating a final world government, the Illuminati are part of a satanic historical force that contributes to the evil original plot. According to that point of view, Carr believes that there are natural-born conspiracists, which is nothing more for Tagif than myth and paranoia invented from a delirious worldview. It is indeed an original aspect of Carr's theories, since most plot theorists usually start their genealogy with the modern age, especially with the French Revolution. As a Christian traditionalist, Carr believes that the world conspiracy is based on a Manichaean way of thinking. This view is common to many anti-Mason and anti-communist conspiracy theorists, starting from Nesta Webster. There's another common variant in seeing the world conspiracy being based on the Sabbatean Frankist teachings, but it also acknowledges Manichaean influences. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm not even sure what to say about all this. It's clear that our world is run uh, somewhere by high-powered people moving pieces around the chessboard. But at the end of the day, this is just... You know, a mix mash of all these ideas, it's almost like walking up to the line, putting your toes on the line and then shoveling nonsense all over the line uh, from my point of view, Jason. Yeah, that's pretty much how I see it. I mean, we know that there are bad people doing bad things who have a lot of control. That's obvious. And I think they do it through the banking systems. The rest of this is just kind of religious conjecture, really, right? Well, not only that, he relies on pulling out names like Pike that are famous people that already um, probably have a lot of people with opinions behind names like this. But as it went on in your last bullet point, you know, he claimed to have all these documents that he didn't. But I would ask, you know, he's claiming that he had a report in his possession that came through Canadian intelligence. Okay, so... You can just get secret reports from Canadian intelligence and then broadcast it out any which way you want to use it. And I would submit that the world doesn't work that way. If there was truly a report from Canadian intelligence, then I'm guessing it would be secret. And if it was secret and you went shooting your mouth off, you see, you can logically see where all this goes. But it comes time and time again to these ideas of atheism, secularism, a certain form of Christianity, and then the big goblin that was in the room from this time all the way up till almost modern times, which was the Red Scare idea. So there's all that, man. And we're going to be getting to that shortly. The John Birch Society, or the JBS. It's a self-described conservative advocacy group that supports anti-communism as well as limited government. It has frequently been described in mainstream media as a radical right and far-right organization. Businessman and founder Robert W. Welch Jr. developed an organizational infrastructure in 1958 of chapters nationwide. Its main activity in the 1960s, said Rick Perlstein, comprised monthly meetings to watch a film by Welch, followed by writing postcards or letters to government officials linking specific policies to the communist menace. After an early rise in membership and influence, efforts by those such as conservative William F. Buckley Jr. and National Review led the JBS to be identified as a fringe element of the conservative movement, mostly in fear of the radicalization of the American right. Originally based in Belmont, Massachusetts, it is now headquartered in Appleton, Wisconsin, with local chapters throughout the United States. The organization owns American Opinion Publishing, which publishes The New American. 
So, I mean, this is just a place that's concerned with right-wing politics, and we all know what politics is in this day and age. Not only do we know what politics is and that it has no concern for the supposed people that are being governed, we can show outright that at least in the United States, uh, the supposed voting we do has no role in seating the, the powerful figures like president. No role at all. The Electoral College has done that, and we've pointed this out time and time again, and it is not arguable in the least for any person that wants to actually go out and educate themselves on how the Electoral College came to be, how they seat the president, and how the voting that goes on is mutually exclusive and basically just a waste of everybody's time. So anytime that we get into the idea of politics of this kind or that kind, we already know what we're looking at. Uh, we're looking at hogwash. Uh, politics on the face of it is not what it is intended to be or thought, or as it is thought of by the majority of people governed by those so-called politicians. And this whole anti-communist Red Scare thing. Right. We have another figure who's really into that sort of thing. His name was Myron Coraval Fagan. He lived from October 31st, 1887 until May 12th, 1972. He was an American writer, producer, and director of film and theater. He was also a major Red Scare figure in the late 1940s and 1950s. In 1945, Fagan claimed he saw secret documents of the meetings in Yalta, shown to him by author John T. Flynn, that led him to write the plays Red Rainbow and Thieves' Paradise. Written in 1945, Red Rainbow portrays FDR, Joseph Stalin, and others in Yalta plotting to deliver the Balkans, Eastern Europe, and Berlin to Stalin. Left-wing groups in New York opposed the production of the play, and Fagan had difficulties getting financial backing for the production. Fagan took the play to Hollywood, where he encountered even more protests against it than he had been facing in New York. In the late 1940s, Fagan launched a one-man crusade against what he claimed was a red conspiracy in Hollywood. Out of this crusade would come the Cinema Educational Guild, which I did try and look up stuff on, but I couldn't find very much, actually. In 1953, Red Rainbow was produced by Bruce Fagan and staged for 16 performances at the Royal Theater between September 14th and September 26th. Written two years later, Thieves' Paradise portrays the same group plotting to create the United Nations as a communist front for a one-world government. Despite opposition, Thieves' Paradise opened at the Las Palmas Theater in Hollywood on December 26, 1947. It starred Howard Johnson, who was subject to a campaign of harassment that was so bitter and intense that it sent him to St. Vincent's Hospital with a nervous breakdown after only six performances, and he is said to have never made another movie in Hollywood. Thieves' Paradise was also produced and staged at the El Patio Theater in Hollywood in April 1948. It opened on April 12th and, despite protests against it, was able to complete its run. On an even heavier and all-encompassing topic, between 1967 and 1968, Fagan recorded The Illuminati and the Council on Foreign Relations, three long-playing records that documented the activities of the House of Rothschild, being also known as The Illuminati. The records were produced by Anthony J. Hilder. So if we take this huge hodgepodge of information that just got thrown out and we boil it down to basics, what we're looking at here is the idea of the fear porn called the Red Scare. Um, to this day, Hollywood is still echoing their blacklisted people. It wasn't too many years ago that if a blacklisted director was brought up uh, some of these people in Hollywood would still supposedly turn up, stand up and turn their backs while other would support them. It's fear porn. It's nonsense. It's divisive and it's intended to be divisive. On the face of it, whenever we see these ideas like the Red Scare or the communist thing that went on, um, it's just it's divide and conquer and it's fear porn. That's what it is. It has no basis in reality for any normal person's lives uh, in the course of, of a lifetime. In the modern age, I would add. And we're seeing this tactic used again in this day and age. They're stirring up the whole, oh, the Russians are behind it nonsense. Right. And now, you know, the, the oldest tricks are the best tricks. And of course, right now, it's a prime example, Jason, how they're using Russia, you know, and this nonsense about nuclear weapons in North Korea. 
Jason and I have showed flat out that the basis, the very foundation for the idea of nukes is Madame Curie, who Hoaxbuster, the, the YouTube channel Hoaxbuster, rightly and so brilliantly identified as the encoding of mercury. Marie Curie, mercury, get it? It's all nonsense. There is no red button in this world where someone can push it and a supposed nuke that's going to destroy the place will be launched. It's all fear porn. And we can know these things. It's just that they are so embedded in all the information and movies that we get uh, that we start to drift away from what's real and start to accept what's popular. So you can boil these things down to what they are, but brilliant, Jason. Right now, here's the red scare again, right? We've got uh, Russia in the news as we speak, along with the old favorite nukes in North Korea. <laughs> so who is Anthony J. Hilder, you may be asking, since he produced these Illuminati records in the late 60s? He is an American activist, author, filmmaker, talk show host, broadcaster, and former actor. In the late 1950s to the mid-1960s, he was also a record producer, producing music in mainly the surf genre. He is also the stepson of actress Dorothy Granger. In later years, Hilder has been vocal about certain issues relating to the New World Order agenda and the banking establishment. He has produced a number of films relating to the subjects, as well as appearing in productions by other filmmakers relating to similar subjects. He is said to be the originator of the terms sheeple, banksters, and evilarchy. So again, man, what do we need to do here but boil it down to its basics? He's an American activist, author, filmmaker, talk show host, excuse me, broadcaster and former actor, and is also the stepson of actress Dorothy Granger. Um, this, in my view, you can't get by these things. You'd have to work pretty hard to step around that kind of a, a record of being involved with the very places that we have shown are regularly involved in nonsense and things that are not helpful to the public at large. Um, what would you add, Jason? I don't know that much about Anthony Hilder. The little I've seen on him, he seemed pretty straightforward. He would just put out the information, and that's that. He didn't strike me as being a fraud at all, but you always get suspicious when you see people's backgrounds. Well, in cases like this, where there's such a huge broadcasting and Hollywood tie-over, it's quite possible that what people are doing is coming out and saying some true things, just to inject them into the dialectic. And it also ends up blunting the point. The first time you heard the word Illuminati, you thought you were being told something. And by the time you've heard it a million times, you should come to understand that you've been told absolutely nothing. So when he comes along, you know, coining terms like evilarchy and banksters, you're not being told anything you couldn't have figured out on your own from the beginning, but it doesn't identify the roots of the problem or anything more than that. And for my part, we know what entertainment is here for. We know what the people who participate in entertainment have been engaged in. And while it might not be 100% of them, it doesn't matter. you got to work pretty hard if you're going to be this intricately associated with mass broadcasting in Hollywood and even be part of a lineage of actresses or actors uh, to get away from that stigma, in my view. I do like the term bankster, though. It's handy, isn't it? So sheeple, but they're both <laughs> overused to the point of, you know, who wants to use them anymore? <laughs> so we're getting into the 1970s now, and as you can see, people are building off of each other's work already. And now we're going to get into an interesting character named John Todd. He was an American speaker and conspiracy theorist. He claimed to be a former occultist who was born into a witchcraft family before converting to Christianity. He was a primary source for many of the Jack Chick publications, the works against Dungeons and Dragons, Catholicism, Neo-Paganism, and Christian rock. That's those little booklets that you still to this day will find here and there scattered about. And they're very doom and gloom Christian kind of thing. In his public appearances, Todd made a variety of claims about witches, Satanists, and the Illuminati, who he alleged were conspiring against Christians. These purported conspiracies often included government officials and leaders of Christian organizations. Investigative reports in magazines and books said there were many inconsistencies in his statements about anti-Christian conspiracies and his own past. In 1988, Todd was convicted in South Carolina on charges of rape and sentenced to 30 years in a prison. In 2004, he was released from prison and placed in a psychiatric facility where he died in 2007. And the big thing I can say about John Todd is there's a group of tapes that people have now put on YouTube that he's giving discussions about what goes on in the music industry a lot. 
Right. I think I've actually seen one or two of these. I don't know a lot about it, but I do remember getting the sense of wondering if this guy was just stage acting and if you went to the jail he was supposedly in, would it be like Charles Manson? Is there any true person? I don't know enough about it to make a call, but you know, here we have divide and conquer again. So there's these Satanists who are only concerned with Christians. Um, so what about all the rest of the world? You know, um, it's just to me, these things have a taint all over them and you're going to make a big deal out of Dungeons and Dragons. There's more important things in this world. Um, and, you know, to this day, where's Dungeons and Dragons now? You know, it was big, I guess, in the 80s or whenever it was, but that even that's fallen away. So it shows you the importance of what they were railing against. I don't know, Jason. Dungeons and Dragons was bought up. It was originally from a company called TSR, and uh, they're now part of something called Wizards of the Coast, I believe. I don't know enough about it, but anything in this world, it's like age, you know, it was the biggest deal in the 80s. Where is it now? There's still no cure, right? So why aren't we living under the same fear that we were in the 80s once they had supposedly identified the disease? Isn't there still a sexually transmitted disease out there that if you get it, it can kill you and there is no known cure for it? Um, you can logically break these things down. Dungeons and Dragons is one of the main things they want to rail against in this bullet point. But it's not a thing anymore. So how important was it in the first place, I would ask? It's really big now with certain groups. A lot of people still play it. Like I was saying, Wizards of the Coast is a big organization. They got very, very big because of Pokemon and Magic cards. So it's all part of that group. <laughs> well... I should step back because there is a whole story behind these ideas and what's actually going on in like Pocket Monster or Pokemon, but maybe that's that's fodder for a different discussion, I think. <laughs> Next, let's discuss an interesting figure named Gary Allen. He lived from August 2nd, 1936 until November 29th, 1986. He was an American conservative journalist and conspiracy theorist, book author, who promoted the theory that international banking and politics control domestic decisions, taking them out of elected officials' hands. Well, that, that could <laughs> very well be true. In 1971, Allen wrote with Larry Abraham a book titled None Dare Call It Conspiracy, and it was prefaced by United States Representative John G. Schmitz of California's 35th Congressional District and the nominee of the American Independent Party in the 1972 U.S. presidential election. It sold more than 4 million copies during the 1972 presidential campaign opposing Nixon and U.S. Senator George S. McGovern. In this book, Allen and Abraham assert that the modern political and economic systems in most developed nations are the result of a sweeping conspiracy by the establishment's power elite, for which he also uses the term insiders. According to the authors, these insiders use elements of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto to forward their socialist communist agenda. Establish an income tax system as a means of extorting money from the common man. Establish a central bank deceptively named so that people will think it is part of the government. Have this bank be the holder of the national debt. Run the national debt and the interest thereon sky high through wars or any sort of deficit spending, starting with World War I. He quotes the Council on Foreign Relations as having stated in its study number seven, the U.S. must strive to A, build a new international order. As an investigator of U.S. financial, industrial, and political elites, Allen wrote other books about the Council on Foreign Relations and the Trilateral Commission, asserting that the term New World Order was used by a secretive elite dedicated to the destruction of all national sovereignties. Allen's last book, Say No to the New World Order, was published posthumously in January of 1987. So maybe we should call this the Captain Obvious bullet point. I mean, international banking and politics control domestic decisions, taking them out of the hands of elected officials. Yeah, that's pretty obvious on the face of it. Then we move on here to find out that things he published sold 4 million copies during a presidential election. Um, that tells us something about this. But then he goes on talking about power elite, but this time the power elite are using a communist manifesto, not Satanists or, or Luciferian ideas. So it's the same things regurgitated over and over and over, but these things are blatantly obvious. Yeah, we know there's a Federal Reserve. Yeah, we know there's a central bank that isn't federal. Yeah, we know that taxes are illegal. We know all these things. So it's it's hard for me to even start to classify this. Because basically the things he's pointing out are obvious on the face of it. 
What I would say about that is this was the early 70s, so it wasn't obvious to most people. In the early 70s, the disillusionment with government was just really starting to sink in heavy because of the Vietnam War. And I think him putting out a book at this time really could have uh, really gotten people's eyes open. I'll accept that. That's a good point. Uh, the time frame is back a ways, and it's hard to know whether, you know, who ever uttered the first New World Order, but it's pretty clear how that entered the dialectic, and it becomes another word that is no, you know, interchangeable with the word Illuminati. It doesn't mean anything. Um, the idea, the over-encompassing idea is that there's going to be one small group of special people who run everything, but there is no identifying trail or thumbprint in any of it for the most part. The next person I also didn't know about until I started looking into the stuff is May Magnan Brussel. She lived from May 29th, 1922 until October 3rd, 1988. She hosted Dialogue Conspiracy, later renamed World Watchers International. She was a radio talk show host, of course. Most of her work on the radio focused on the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. She also covered the history of fascism. Distraught by the murder of President Kennedy, she purchased all 26 printed volumes issued by the Warren Commission report and attempted to make sense of them by cross-indexing the entire work. May was disturbed by the contradictory information and unreported realities she discovered. As a result, she subscribed to many major newspapers and magazines whose stories she filed and organized, uncovering connections and patterns behind government and corporate naughtiness that she found disturbing. Her career in radio started in May 1971, when as a guest on the independently owned station KLRB, she questioned the 26-volume Warren Commission hearings. She suggested Lee Harvey Oswald might not have been the only person involved in the assassination of the president. She became a weekly guest. Shortly after, she became the host of Dialogue Conspiracy, which from 1983 until 1988, she hosted the same show on KAZU, a radio station based in Pacific Grove. Additionally, she wrote articles that were published in The Realist, a magazine published by Paul Krasner. An impressed John Lennon actually donated money so Krasner could afford to print May Brussels' work. All right. Um, <laughs> how do I even go with this? Let's just boil it down to basics. She's focusing on the death or the supposed assassination of John F. Kennedy, which was just more stagecraft in my view. And we end this bullet point by talking about John Lennon, which is no different in my view. Um, it's hard to talk about these things because so many people have creep preconceived notions and fail to try to identify the larger picture and the recurring cyclical nature of these types of things. But in my view, what she's focused on are stagecrafted events. So the question becomes, did she recognize there was nonsense here or was it something else altogether? And I don't know enough about her to make a call, but I can tell you at the base of everything she's covering here, uh, you're looking at stagecraft and even closes out with old John Lennon, who did his part to further the illusion that we live in. I've never heard of her, so it sounds like she may have noticed something was odd about all of that from early on and just worked to point it out. Now, what she finally concluded, I don't know. I'd have to look into her work some more. Well, one thing about the whole JFK thing is it was fed in a conspiratorial manner to keep it alive and to keep everyone confused and, and using the kind of Tavistockian playbook of never give anyone a clear view. And, you know, these things are ridiculous. That was the president of the most powerful nation in the world, we are told at the time, and nobody seemed to be able to figure out anything. It's a bit like the bin Laden thing, you know, it's just it's beyond the pale for a logical mind. All right, so the next figure we're going to talk about is a man named Eustace Mullins. He lived from March 9, 1923 until February 2, 2010. He was an American writer, a propagandist, Holocaust denier, and disciple of the poet Ezra Pound. His best-known book is The Secrets of the Federal Reserve, in which he alleged that a group of shadowy organizations had conspired to write the Federal Reserve Act for its own nefarious purposes and then induced Congress to enact it into law. I'm pretty sure that's kind of how it did go down. Right. British journalist David Randall called Mullins one of the world's leading conspiracy theorists. The Southern Poverty Law Center described him as a one-man organization of hate. Well, that just tells me that he was probably onto something. 
Well, I mean, come on. Uh, how can you call a man a conspiracy theorist that says something about the Federal Reserve that's true? Uh, the statement about the Federal Reserve here, it's, it's undeniable. We understand what the Federal Reserve is. We understand that the supposed government of this country, for whatever reason, let it happen. And we understand that we now have a central bank that is owned by private families. So on the face of what this man pointed out, it's not conspiracy at all. It's fact. So there's that, Jason. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Wiping away all the silly cobwebs of conspiracy, there's no doubt that the way they control things on this world is through the banking systems. And so getting a central bank in all the major countries of the world is the way to do it. They can control how everything runs. Yeah, wait, wait till they push the Bitcoin thing. You know, if that ever comes, uh, what that's the ultimate central bank, right? Nobody even knows who controls it, who created it, or why anything happens with it, because it's all invisible, because it's all done online. I would submit that Bitcoin, if it's ever successful in being implemented, which I'm sure it will be in some, some age that we exist, uh, will be the ultimate central bank with the ultimate loss of freedom attached to it. But anyhow, Jason... Now we're going to start getting into a lot of figures who are actually still going at it today, for better or worse, and I have varying opinions on a lot of these people. Now, I don't have a lot written about the next figure, whose name is Jordan Maxwell, but he has certainly influenced a lot of people in what would be considered the truth movement. He's considered by many to be one of the first and best individuals to get information on astrotheology, Saturn, and the birth certificate, just for example, out to the people in a big way. He began to be seen in the late 1980s and early 1990s doing lectures, interviews, and releasing television documentaries and books. There's always been a lot of drama around Jordan, however, and he is definitely still doing things today at the age of, I believe, 76. So here's another person that I know is very popular, but I've, I don't know much of anything about them. I've never followed them or read their works or any of this kind of thing. I guess I will add anyone who's working to get people to look up at the sky clock. I think that's a good thing, but I just don't know enough about Jordan. I know he's popular even to this day, but that's about all I know. I know a little bit about him, and I don't want to slam Jordan. I actually do really like a lot of what he's done. I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, because he will push some UFO stuff. But the main bulk of his work is on astrotheology, uh, words and terms, their meanings, and all that kind of thing. And the majority of that is really, really good. My problem with it is that he intermingles some of this oddball UFO aliens stuff, reptilians and all that, and I don't want to hear that crap. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But again, anyone who's got people looking up at the sky, taking apart language, those are helpful things. But again, you know, a person has to be their own adult editor and they need to challenge things and they need to determine for themselves what's what's valid and what's not. And this very next person that we're about to cover, I have a feeling what I'm about to say it will upset many, but I'm sorry. I looked at this carefully. I boiled it down and I've known for quite some time. And not only that, Jason and I have done a lot of work to show what modern ufology is. And the last thing I'll say about Jordan is, I think that overall his work is a positive thing and he's influenced a lot of people to question the mainstream narrative, which absolutely is a very good thing. Now, the next figure we're gonna talk about is a man named Milton William Cooper, commonly known as Bill Cooper. He lived from May 6, 1943 until November 5th, 2001. He was an American conspiracy theorist, a radio broadcaster and author best known for his 1991 book, Behold a Pale Horse, in which he warned of multiple global conspiracies, some involving extraterrestrial aliens. Cooper also described HIV-AIDS as a man-made disease used to target blacks, Hispanics, and homosexuals, and that a cure was made before it was implemented. He has been described as a militia theoretician. He became very well-known during his life for doing lectures as well as his long-running shortwave radio program called The Hour of the Time. So look, man... No matter what you want to think about this, we have the UFO nonsense mixed in with it. And while I'm not super familiar with this guy's work, um, I do know the backstory. And if I'm not mistaken, Jason, didn't he later try to walk away from the alien nonsense? Yeah, Bill Cooper got known a lot early on in the UFO community and then got really heavily into patriotism and the militia movement and pointed out that the UFO community, as he himself discovered, this is what he said, that it was a whole bunch of nonsense used to uh, manipulate people. So 
I don't know whether he actually turned over a good leaf or not, but uh, he was very, very, very influential. Yeah. Um, once you get mixed up in the alien nonsense um, and you have pushed that idea out into Lord knows how many minds, if you're not spending the rest of your time pointing out why it's wrong, um, for me, that's problematic. But then we got the AIDS HIV thing here. Um, there are people out there now, you can look it up on YouTube, where actual doctors begin to challenge the idea of this, looked at the testing mechanisms, and they're showing the fraud of it all. But I will point out again, I lived through the 80s, and where I lived in San Diego, it was one hell of a party. I never knew a single person who got HIV, and I should have known endless people. There were drugs abounding. Uh, the sexual atmosphere at that time was much, much different, even having dated people who were in the medical establishment and the idea that there was this massive outbreak, it just wasn't so. I had an end to the hospitals. I knew people who worked through many of the hospitals in San Diego. And again, I'll ask, you know, so in the 80s, we all had to watch what we did. You could be killed if you had unprotected sex. Well, where is it now? There was never any cure. Why did it just predominantly hit us in the 80s and then kind of peter off into the background and then become the nonsensical fodder for people like Magic Johnson to go out and push where I've got the disease. Oh, but by the way, it'll never kill me. I can just hand it out to all these people. Even the story of what AIDS is morphed along the way. And I know a lot of people are going to probably comment and have a problem with that, but I'm sorry, man. It logically does not hold one drop of water. I can tell you growing up through the 80s when I was in junior high and all that, they were pushing heavily on us as kids the whole AIDS scare thing. I mean, that was a big, big deal. There were posters everywhere. They would talk about it in health class, all that sort of thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm even familiar with doctors who are doing residencies um, in some of the places I was in San Diego. Uh, I knew doctors who did the residency then, and they claimed flat out there was this new disease that no one could identify, and it was coming into the ER. So it's hard to know how it all happened, but when you logically work out what you were told and what we can observe, it's, it's nonsense. That's all it is. And then when you add on top the people who have shown what the AIDS testing devices are and that one day you could be positive and the next not. And by the way, what you're testing for has no bearing on any disease called AIDS. Uh, you begin to get a pretty accurate picture, in my view. In the second hour, we're going to be touching on David Icke, Art Bell. Ooh, one of my favorites here, Richard C. Hoagland, who had the gumption to badmouth me in a Newsweek article after I'd been interviewed there. Uh, there's a whole story that I will tell behind the Richard C. Hoagland nonsense. But anything you want to want to add about the second hour before I wrap it up here, Jason? Yeah, we're going to get into some of the heavy-duty figures, a lot of whom I would consider the fraud people. Yeah, I mean, openly in the modern age, pushing nonsense, and David Icke is going to be at the top of that list. Anyhow, that does bring episode 101, first hour to a close. At the posting of this episode, there will be 101 free hours of content at crow777radio.com that do not require a login. If you'd like to become a member, you are in fact protecting free speech because everything that gets removed or challenged in YouTube or anywhere else is backed up on my website and maintained in perpetuity to protect the free speech that was initially recorded and then censored by social media outlets. So there it is, man. Hope to see you all over at crow777radio.com. Cheers.